This has been an audio recording of Mysticism and Logic by Bertrand Russell. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. Preface The following essays have been written and published at various times, and my thanks are due to the previous publishers for the permission to reprint them. The essay on Mysticism and Logic appeared in the Hibbert Journal for July 1914. The Place of Science in a Liberal Education appeared in two numbers of The New Statesman, May 24th and 31st, 1913. The Free Man's Workshop and the Study of Mathematics were included in a former collection, now out of print, Philosophical Essays, also published by Messrs. Longmans, Green & Co. Both were written in 1902. The first appeared originally in the Independent Review for 1903. The second in the New Quarterly, November 1907. In theoretical ethics, the position advocated in the Freeman's workshop is not quite identical with that which I hold now. I feel less convinced than I did then of the objectivity of good and evil. But the general attitude towards life which is suggested in that essay still seems to me, in the main, the one which must be adopted in times of stress and difficulty by those who have no dogmatic religious beliefs, if inward defeat is to be avoided. The essay on Mathematics and the Metaphysicians was written in 1901 and appeared in an American magazine, the International Monthly, under the title Recent Work in the Philosophy of Mathematics. Some points in this essay require modification in view of later work. These are indicated in the footnotes. Its tone is partly explained by the fact that the editor begged me to make the article as romantic as possible. All the above essays are entirely popular, but those that follow are somewhat more technical. On Scientific Method and Philosophy was the Herbert Spencer Lecture at Oxford in 1914 and was published by the Clarendon Press, which has kindly allowed me to include it in this collection. The Ultimate Constituents of Matter was an address to the Manchester Philosophical Society early in 1915, and was published in the Monist in July of that year. The essay on the relation of sense data to physics was written in January 1914, and first appeared in number four of that year's volume of Scientia, an International Review of Scientific Synthesis, edited by M. Eugenio Rignano, published monthly by Messrs. Williams and Norgate, London, Nicola Zanicelli, Bologna, and Felix Alcan, Paris. The essay on the notion of cause was the presidential address to the Aristotelian Society in 1912, November, and was published in their proceedings for 1912 and 13. Knowledge by Acquaintance and Knowledge by Description was also a paper read before the Aristotelian Society and published in their proceedings for 1910 and 11. London, September 1917. Mysticism and Logic Metaphysics, or the attempt to conceive the world as a whole by means of thought, 
has been developed from the first by the union and conflict of two very different human impulses. The one urging men towards mysticism, the other urging them towards science. Some men have achieved greatness through one of these impulses alone, others through the other alone. In Hume, for example, the scientific impulse reigns quite unchecked, while in Blake, a strong hostility to science coexists with profound mystic insight. But the greatest men who have been philosophers have felt the need both of science and of mysticism. The attempt to harmonize the two was what made their life, and what always must, for all its arduous uncertainty, make philosophy to some minds a greater thing than either science or religion. Before attempting an explicit characterization of the scientific and the mystical impulses, I will illustrate them by examples from two philosophers whose greatness lies in the very intimate blending which they achieved. The two philosophers I mean are Heraclitus and Plato. Heraclitus, as everyone knows, was a believer in universal flux. Time builds and destroys all things. From the new fragments that remain, it is not easy to discover how he arrived at his opinions. But there are some sayings that strongly suggest scientific observation as the source. The things that can be seen, heard, and learned, he says, are what I prize the most. This is the language of the empiricist, to whom observation is the sole guarantee of truth. The sun is new every day, is another fragment, and this opinion, in spite of its paradoxical character, is obviously inspired by scientific reflection, and no doubt seemed to him to obviate the difficulty of understanding how the sun can work its way underground from west to east during the night. Actual observation must have also suggested to him his central doctrine, that fire is the one permanent substance of which all visible things are passing phases. In combustion we see things change utterly, while their flame and heat rise up into the air and vanish. This world, which is the same for all, he says, no one of gods or men has ever made. What it was ever is now and ever shall be, an ever-living fire, with measures kindling and measures going out. The transformations of fire are, first of all, sea, and half of the sea is earth. Half whirlwind. This theory, though no longer one which science can accept, is nevertheless scientific in spirit. Science, too, might have inspired the famous saying to which Plato alludes You cannot step twice into the same rivers, for fresh waters are ever flowing in upon you. But we find another statement among the extant fragments. We step and do not step into the same rivers we are and are not. The comparison of this statement, which is mystical, with the one quoted by Plato, which is scientific, shows how intimately the two tendencies are blended in the system of Heraclitus. Mysticism is, in essence, little more than a certain intensity of depth and feeling in regard to what is believed about the universe and this kind of feeling leads Heraclitus on the basis of his science to strangely poignant sayings concerning life and the world, such as Time is a child playing drafts, 
the kingly power is a child's. It is poetic imagination, not science, which presents time as despotic lord of the world, with all the irresponsible frivolity of a child. It is mysticism, too, which leads Heraclitus to assert the identity of opposites. Good and ill are one, he says, and again, to God all things are fair and good and right, but men hold some things wrong and some right. Much of mysticism underlies the ethics of Heraclitus. It is true that a scientific determinism alone might have inspired the statement, Man's character is his fate. But only a mystic would have said, Every beast is driven to the pasture with blows. And again, it is hard to fight with one's heart's desire. Whatever it wishes to get, it purchases at the cost of a soul. And again, wisdom is one thing. It is to know the thought by which all things are steered through all things. Examples might be multiplied, but those that have been given are enough to show the character of the man. The facts of science, as they appeared to him, fed the flame in his soul, and in its light he saw into the depths of the world by the reflection of his own dancing, swiftly penetrating fire. In such a nature we see the true union of the mystic and the man of science the highest eminence, as I think, that it is possible to achieve in the world of thought. In Plato, the same twofold impulse exists, though the mystic impulse is distinctly the stronger of the two, and secures ultimate victory whenever the conflict is sharp. His description of the cave is the classical statement of belief in a knowledge and reality truer and more real than that of the senses. Imagine a number of men living in an underground cavernous chamber with an entrance open to the light, extending along the entire length of the cavern in which they have been confined from their childhood, with their legs and necks so shackled that they are obliged to sit and look straight forwards, because their chains render it impossible for them to turn their heads around, and imagine a bright fire burning some way off, above and behind them and an elevated roadway passing between the fire and the prisoners, with a low wall built along it, like the screens which conjurers put up in front of their audience, and above which they exhibit their wonders. I have it, he replied. Also figure to yourself a number of persons walking behind this wall, and carrying with them the statues of men, and images of other animals, wrought in stone and wood and all kinds of materials, together with various other articles, which overtop the wall, and as you might expect, let some of the passerbys be talking, and others silent. You are describing a strange scene, and strange prisoners. They resemble us, I replied. Now consider what would happen if the course of nature brought them a release from their fetters, and a remedy for their foolishness, in the following manner. Let us suppose that one of them has been released, and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck around and walk with open eyes towards the light. And let us suppose that he goes through all these actions with pain, and that the dazzling splendor renders him incapable of discerning those objects of which he used formerly to see the shadows. What answer should you expect him to make, if someone were to tell him that in those days he was watching foolish phantoms, but that now he is somewhat nearer to reality, 
and is turned towards things more real and sees more correctly. Above all, if he were to point out to him the several objects that are passing by and question him and compel him to answer what they are. Should you not expect him to be puzzled and to regard his old visions as truer than the objects now forced upon his notice? Yes, much truer. Hence, I suppose habit will be necessary to enable him to perceive objects in that upper world. At first, he will be most successful in distinguishing shadows. Then he will discern the reflections of men and other things in water and afterwards the realities, and after this he will raise his eyes to encounter the light of the moon and stars, finding it less difficult to study the heavenly bodies and the heaven itself by night, than the sun and the sun's light by day. Doubtless. Last of all, I imagine, he will be able to observe and contemplate the nature of the sun, not as it appears in water or in an alien ground, but as it is in itself in its own territory. Of course, his next step will be to draw the conclusion that the sun is the author of the seasons and the years, and the guardian of all things in the visible world, and in a manner the cause of all those things which he and his companions used to see. Obviously, this will be his next step. Now this imaginary case, my dear Glancon, you must apply in all our parts to our former statements by comparing the region which the eye reveals to the prison house, and the light of the fire therein to the power of the sun. And if, by the upward ascent and the contemplation of the upper world, you understand the mounting of the soul into the intellectual region, you will hit the tendency of my own surmises. Since you desire to be told what they are, though indeed God only knows whether they are correct. But, be that as it may, the view which I take of the subject is to the following effect. In the world of knowledge, the essential form of good is the limit of our inquiries and can barely be perceived. But when perceived, we cannot help but concluding that it is in every case the source of all that is bright and beautiful. In the visible world, giving birth to light and its master, and in the intellectual world, dispensing immediately with full authority, truth, and reason. And that whosoever would act wisely, either in private or in public, must set this form of good before his eyes. But in this passage, as throughout most of Plato's teachings, there is an identification of the good with the truly real, which became embodied in the philosophical tradition, and is still largely operative in our own day. In thus allowing a legislative function to the good, Plato produced a divorce between philosophy and science, from which, in my opinion, both have suffered ever since and are still suffering. A man of science, whatever his hopes may be, must lay them aside while he studies nature, and the philosopher, if he is to achieve truth, must do the same. Ethical considerations can only legitimately appear when the truth has been ascertained. They can and should appear as determining our feelings towards the truth and our manner of ordering our lives in view of the truth, but not as themselves dictating what the truth is to be. There are passages in Plato, among those which illustrate the scientific side of his mind, where he seems clearly aware of this. The most noteworthy is the one in which Socrates, as a young man, is explaining the theory of ideas to Parmenides 
After Socrates has explained that there is an idea of the good, but not of such things as hair and mud and dirt, Parmenides advises him not to despise even the meanest things, and this advice shows the genuine scientific temper. It is with this impartial temper that the mystic's apparent insight into a higher reality and a hidden good has to be combined if philosophy is to realize its greatest possibilities. And it is failure in this respect that has made so much of idealistic philosophy thin, lifeless, and insubstantial. It is only in marriage with the world that our ideals can bear fruit. Divorced from it, they remain barren. But marriage with the world is not to be achieved by an ideal which shrinks from fact, or demands in advance that the world shall conform to its desires. Hermenides himself is the source of a peculiarly interesting strain of mysticism which pervades Plato's thought. The mysticism which may be called logical because it is embodied in the theories on logic. This form of mysticism which appears, so far as the West is concerned, to have originated from Parmenides, dominates the reasonings of all the great mystical metaphysicians from his day to that of Hegel and his modern disciples. Reality, he says, is uncreated, indestructible, unchanging, indivisible. It is immovable in the bonds of mighty chains, without beginning and without end, since coming into being and passing away have been driven afar, and true belief has cast them away. The fundamental principle of his inquiry is stated in a sentence which not be out of place in Hegel. Thou canst not know what is not, that is impossible, nor utter it, for it is the same thing that can be thought and that can be. And again it needs must be that what can be thought and spoken of is for it is possible for it to be and it is not possible for what is nothing to be. The impossibility of change follows from this principle, for what is past can be spoken of, and therefore, by the principle, still is. Mystical philosophy in all ages and in all parts of the world is characterized by certain beliefs which are illustrated by the doctrines which we have been considering. There is first the belief in insight, as against discursive analytical knowledge, the belief in a way of wisdom, sudden, penetrating, coercive, which is contrasted with the slow and fallible study of outward appearance by a science relying wholly upon the senses. All who are capable of absorption in an inward passion must have experienced at times the strange feeling of unreality in common objects, the loss of contact with daily things, in which the solidity of the outer world is lost and the soul seems in utter loneliness to bring forth out of its own depths the mad dance of fantastic phantoms, which have hitherto appeared as independently real and living. This is the negative side of the mystic's initiation, the doubt concerning common knowledge, preparing the way for the reception of what seems a higher wisdom. Many men to whom this negative experience is familiar do not pass beyond it, but for the mystic it is merely the gateway to an ampler world. The mystic insight begins with the sense of a mystery unveiled, of a hidden wisdom now suddenly becomes certain beyond the possibility of a doubt. The sense of certainty and revelation comes earlier than any definite belief. 
The definite beliefs at which mystics arrive are the result of reflection upon the inarticulate experience gained in the moment of insight. Often, beliefs which have no real connection with this moment become subsequently attracted into the central nucleus. Thus, in addition to the convictions which all mystics share, we find, in many of them, other convictions of a moral local and temporary character, which no doubt become amalgamated with what was essentially mystical in virtue of their subjective certainty. We may ignore such inessential accretions and confine ourselves to the beliefs which all mystics share. The first and most direct outcome of the moment of illumination is belief in the possibility of a way of knowledge which may be called revelation or insight or intuition, as contrasted with sense, reason, and analysis, which are regarded as blind guides leading to the morass of illusion. Closely connected with this belief is the conception of a reality beyond the world of appearance, and utterly different from it. This reality is regarded with an admiration often amounting to worship. It is felt to be always and everywhere close at hand, thinly veiled by the shows of sense, ready for the perceptive mind. To shine in its glory, even through the apparent folly and wickedness of man. The poet, the artist, and the lover are seekers after that glory. The haunting beauty that they pursue is the faint reflection of its sun. But the mystic lives in the full light of the vision. What others dimly seek, he knows. With a knowledge beside which all other knowledge is ignorance. The second characteristic of mysticism is its belief in unity, and its refusal to admit opposition or division anywhere. We found Heraclitus saying, Good and ill are one. And again, he says, The way up and the way down is one and the same. The same attitude appears in the simultaneous assertion of contradictory propositions, such as, We step and do not step into the same rivers, and we are and are not. The assertion of Parmenides, that reality is one and indivisible, comes from the same impulse towards unity. In Plato, the impulse is less prominent, being held in check by his theory of ideas. But it reappears, as far as his logic permits, in the doctrine of the primacy of the good. A third mark of almost all mystical metaphysics is the denial of the reality of time. This is an outcome of the denial of division. If all is one, the distinction of past and future must be illusory. We have seen this doctrine prominent in Parmenides and among moderns it is fundamental in the systems of Spinoza and Hegel. The last of the doctrines of mysticism which we have considered is the belief that all evil is mere appearance, an illusion produced by the divisions and oppositions of the analytical intellect. Mysticism does not maintain that such things as cruelty, for example, are good, but it denies that they are real. They belong to that lower world of phantoms from which they are to be liberated by the insight of the vision. Sometimes, for example in Hegel, and at least verbally in Spinoza, not only evil but good also is regarded as illusory. Though nevertheless the emotional attitude towards what is held to be reality is such as would naturally be associated with the belief that reality is good. What is, in all cases, ethically characteristic of mysticism is absence of indignation or protest, acceptance with joy, 
disbelief in the ultimate truth of the division into two hostile camps, the good and the bad. This attitude is a direct outcome of the nature of the mystical experience. With its sense of unity is associated a feeling of infinite peace. Indeed, it may be suspected that the feeling of peace produces, as feelings do in dreams, the whole system of associated beliefs which make up the body of the mystic doctrine. But this is a difficult question, and one in which it cannot be hoped that mankind will reach agreement. Four questions thus arise in considering the truth or falsehood of mysticism, namely, 1. Are there two ways of knowing, which may be called respectively reason and intuition? And if so, is either to be preferred to the other? 2. Is all plurality and division illusory? Number 3. Is time unreal? 4. What kind of reality belongs to good and evil? On all four of these questions, while fully developed mysticism seems to me mistaken, I yet believe that by sufficient restraint, there is an element of wisdom to be learned from the mystical way of feeling, which does not seem to be attainable in any other manner. If this is the truth, mysticism is to be commended as an attitude towards life, not as a creed about the world. The metaphysical creed, I shall maintain, is a mistaken outcome of the emotion, although this emotion, as coloring and informing all other thoughts and feelings, is the inspirer of whatever is best in man. Even the cautious and patient investigation of truth by science, which seems the very antithesis of the mystic's swift certainty, may be fostered and nourished by that very spirit of reverence in which mysticism lives and moves. Number 1. Reason and Intuition Of the reality or unreality of the mystic's world, I know nothing. I have no wish to deny it, nor even to declare that the insight which reveals it is not a genuine insight. What I do wish to maintain, and it is here that the scientific attitude becomes imperative, is that insight, untested and unsupported, is an insufficient guarantee of truth. In spite of the fact that much of the most important truth is first suggested by its means, it is common to speak of an opposition between instinct and reason. In the 18th century, the opposition was drawn in favor of reason. But under the influence of Rousseau and the Romantic movement, instinct was given the preference. First, by those who rebelled against artificial forms of government and thought and then, as purely rationalistic defense of traditional theology became increasingly difficult, by all who felt in science a menace to creeds which they associated with a spiritual outlook on life and the world. Bergson, under the name of intuition, has raised instinct to the position of sole arbiter of metaphysical truth. But in fact, the opposition of instinct and reason is mainly illusory. Instinct, intuition, or insight is what first leads to the beliefs which subsequent reasons confirms or confutes. But the confirmation where it is possible consists in the last analysis of agreement with other beliefs no less instinctive. Reason is a harmonizing, controlling force rather than a creative one. Even in the most purely logical realm, it is insight that first arrives at what is new. Where instinct and reason do sometimes conflict is in regard to single beliefs, 
held instinctively, and held with such determination that no degree of inconsistency with other beliefs leads to their abandonment. Instinct, like all human faculties, is liable to error. Those in whom reason is weak are often unwilling to admit this as regards themselves, though all admit it in regard to others. Where instinct is least liable to error is in practical matters as to which right judgment is held to survival. Friendship and hostility in others, for instance, are often felt with extraordinary discrimination through very careful disguises. But even in such matters, a wrong impression may be given by reserve or flattery. And in matters less directly practical, such as philosophy deals with, very strong instinctive beliefs are sometimes wholly mistaken, as we may come to know through their perceived inconsistency with other equally strong beliefs. It is such considerations that necessitate the harmonizing mediation of reason, which tests our beliefs by their mutual compatibility and examines, in doubtful cases, the possible sources of error on the one side and the other. In this, there is no opposition to instinct as a whole, but only to blind reliance upon some one interesting aspect of instinct, to the exclusion of other more commonplace but not less trustworthy aspects. It is such one-sidedness, not instinct itself, that reason aims to correcting. These more or less trite maxims may be illustrated by application to Bergson's advocacy of intuition as against intellect. There are, he says, two profoundly different ways of knowing a thing. The first implies that we move round the object, the second that we enter into it. The first depends on the point of view in which we are placed and on the symbols by which we express ourselves. The second neither depends upon a point of view nor relies on any symbol. The first kind of knowledge may be said to stop at the relative, the second, in those cases where it is possible, to attain the absolute. The second of these, which is intuition, is, he says, the kind of intellectual sympathy by which one places oneself within an object in order to coincide with what is unique in it and therefore inexpressible. In illustration, he mentions self-knowledge. There is one reality, at least, which we all seize from within, by intuition and not by simple analysis. It is our own personality and its flowing through time, our self which endures. The rest of Bergson's philosophy consists in reporting, through the imperfect medium of words, the knowledge gained by intuition, and the consequent complete condemnation of all the pretended knowledge derived from science and common sense. This procedure, since it takes sides in a conflict of instinctive beliefs, stands in need of justification by proving the greater trustworthiness of the beliefs on one side than those on the other. Bergson attempts this justification in two ways. First, by explaining that intellect is purely practical faculty to secure biological success. Secondly, by mentioning remarkable feats of instinct in animals and by pointing out characteristics of the world which though intuition can apprehend them, are baffling to the intellect as he interprets it. Of Bergson's theory that intellect is a purely practical faculty, developed in the struggle for survival, and not a source of true beliefs, we may say, first, that it is only through intellect that we know the struggle for survival, 
and of the biological ancestry of man. If the intellect is misleading, the whole of this merely inferred history is presumably untrue. If, on the other hand, we agree with him in thinking that evolution took place as Darwin believed, then it is not only intellect, but all our faculties that have been developed under the stress of practical utility. Intuition is seen at its best where it is directly useful, for example in regard to other people's characters and dispositions. Bergson's apparently holds that capacity for this kind of knowledge is less explicable by the struggle for existence than, for example, capacity for pure mathematics. Yet the savage deceived by false friendship is likely to pay for this mistake with his life, whereas even in the most civilized societies, men are not put to death for mathematical incompetence. All the most striking of his instances of intuition in animals have a very direct survival value. The fact is, of course, that both intuition and intellect have been developed because they are useful, and that speaking broadly, they are useful when they give truth and become harmful when they give falsehood. Intellect, in civilized man, like artistic capacity, has occasionally been developed beyond the point where it is useful to the individual. Intuition, on the other hand, seems on the whole to diminish as civilization increases. It is greater, as a rule, in children than in adults, in the uneducated than in the educated. Probably in dogs it exceeds anything to be found in human beings, but those who see in these facts a recommendation of intuition ought to return to running wild in the woods, dying themselves with woad and living on hips and haws. Let us examine whether intuition possesses any such infallibility as Bergson claims for it. The best instance of it, according to him, is our acquaintance with ourselves, yet self-knowledge is proverbially rare and difficult. Most men, for example, have in their nature meannesses, vanities, and envies of which they are quite unconscious, though even their best friends can perceive them without any difficulty. It is true that intuition has a convincingness which is lacking to intellect. While it is present, it is almost impossible to doubt its truth. But if it should appear, on examination, to be at least as fallible as intellect, its greater subjective certainty becomes a demerit, making it only the more irresistibly deceptive. Apart from self-knowledge, one of the most notable examples of intuition is the knowledge people believe themselves to possess of those with whom they are in love. The wall between different personalities seems to become transparent, and people think they see into another's soul as into their own. Yet deception in such cases is constantly practiced with success. And even when there is no intentional deception, experience gradually proves, as a rule, that the supposed insight was illusory, and that the slower, more groping methods of the intellect are in the long run more reliable. Bergson maintains that intellect can only deal with things insofar as they resemble what had been experienced in the past while intuition has the power of apprehending the uniqueness and novelty that always belong to each fresh moment. That there is something unique at, and new at every moment is certainly true. It is also true that this cannot be fully expressed by means of intellectual concepts. Only direct acquaintance can give knowledge of what is unique and new. 
but direct acquaintance of this kind is given fully in sensation and does not require, so far as I can see, any special faculty of intuition for its apprehension. It is neither intellect nor intuition, but sensation that supplies new data. But when the data are new in any remarkable manner, intellect is much more capable of dealing with them than intuition would be. The hen with a brood of ducklings no doubt has intuition, which seems to place her inside them, and not merely to know them analytically, but when the ducklings take to the water, the whole apparent intuition is seen to be illusory, and the hen is left helpless on the shore. Intuition, in fact, is an aspect and development of instinct, and like all instinct, is admirable in those customary surroundings which have molded the habits of the animal in question but totally incompetent as soon as the surroundings are changed in a way which demands some non-habitual mode of action. The theoretical understanding of the world, which is the aim of philosophy, is not a matter of great practical importance to animals, or to savages, or even to the most civilized men. It is hardly to be supposed, therefore, that the rapid, rough, and ready methods of instinct or intuition will find in this field a favorable ground for their application. It is the older kinds of activity which bring out our kinship with remote generations of animal and semi-human ancestors that show intuition at its best. In such matters as self-preservation and love, intuition will act sometimes, though not always, with a swiftness and precision which are astonishing to the critical intellect. But philosophy is not one of the pursuits which illustrate our affinity with the past. It is a highly refined, highly civilized pursuit, demanding for its success a certain liberation from the life of instinct, and even at times a certain aloofness from all mundane hopes and fears. It is not in philosophy, therefore, that we can hope to see intuition at its best. On the contrary, since the true objects of philosophy and the habit of thought demanded for their apprehension are strange, unusual, and remote, it is here, more almost than anywhere else, that intellect proves superior to intuition, and that quick, unanalyzed convictions are at least deserving of uncritical acceptance. In advocating the scientific restraint and balance, as against the self-assertion of a confident reliance upon intuition, we are only urging, in the sphere of knowledge, that largeness of contemplation, that impersonal disinterestedness and that freedom from practical preoccupations which have been inculcated by all the great religions of the world. Thus our conclusion, however it may conflict with the explicit beliefs of many mystics, is in essence not contrary to the spirit which inspires those beliefs, but rather the outcome of this very spirit as applied in the realm of thought. Unity and Plurality one of the most convincing aspects of the mystic illumination is the apparent revelation to the oneness of all things, giving rise to the pantheism in religion and to monoism in philosophy. An elaborate logic, beginning with Parmenides and culminating in Hegel and his followers, has been gradually developed to prove that the universe is one indivisible whole and that what seems to be its parts, if considered as substantial and self-existing, are mere illusion. The conception of a reality quite other than the world of appearance, a reality one, indivisible and unchanging, 
was introduced into Western philosophy by Parmenides. Not nominally at least, for mystical or religious reasons, but on the basis of a logical argument as to the impossibility of not being, and most subsequent metaphysical systems are the outcome of this fundamental idea. The logic used in defense of mysticism seems to be faulty as logic, and open to technical criticisms, which I have explained elsewhere. I shall not here repeat these criticisms, since they are lengthy and difficult, but shall instead attempt an analysis of the state of mind from which mystical logic has arisen. Belief in a reality quite different from what appears to the senses arises with irresistible force in certain moods, which are the source of most mysticism and of most metaphysics. While such a mood is dominant, the need of logic is not felt, and accordingly the more thoroughgoing mystics do not employ logic, but appeal directly to the immediate deliverance of their insight. But such fully developed mysticism is rare in the West. When the intensity of emotional conviction subsides, a man who is in the habit of reasoning will search for logical grounds in favor of the belief which he finds himself. But since the belief already exists, he will be very hospitable to any ground that suggests itself. The paradoxes apparently proved by his logic are really the paradoxes of mysticism, and are the goal which he feels his logic must reach if it is to be in accordance with insight. The resulting logic has rendered most philosophers incapable of giving any account of the world of science in daily life. If they had been anxious to give such an account, they would probably have discovered the errors of their logic, but most of them were less anxious to understand the world of science in daily life than to convict it of unreality in the interests of a supersensible real world. It is in this way that logic has been pursued by those of the great philosophers who were mystics. But since they usually took for granted the supposed insight of the mystic emotion, their logical doctrines were presented with certain dryness, and were believed by their disciples to be quite independent of the sudden illumination from which they sprang. Nevertheless, their origin clung to them, and they remained to borrow a useful word from Mr. Santayana, malicious in regard to the world of science and common sense. It is only so that we can account for the complacency with which philosophers have accepted the inconsistency of their doctrines with all the common and scientific facts which seem best established and most worthy of belief. The logic of mysticism shows, as is natural, the defects which are inherent in anything malicious. The impulse to logic, not felt while the mystic mood is dominant, reasserts itself as the mood fades, but with the desire to retain the vanishing insight, or at least to prove that it was insight, and that what seems to contradict it is illusion. The logic which thus arises is not quite disinterested or candid, and is inspired by a certain hatred of the daily world to which it is to be applied. Such an attitude naturally does not tend to the best results. Everyone knows that to read an author simply in order to refute him is not the way to understand him, and to read the book of nature with a conviction that it is all illusion is just as unlikely to lead to understanding. If our logic is to find the common word intelligible, it must not be hostile, but must be inspired by a genuine acceptance, such as it is not usually to be found among metaphysicians. Number 3. Time 
The unreality of time is cardinal doctrine of many metaphysical systems, often nominally based, and already by Parmenides, upon logical arguments, but originally derived, at any rate, in the founders of new systems. From the certainty which is born in the moment of mystic insight. As a Persian Sufi poet says, Past and future are what veil God from our sight. Burn up both of them with fire. How long wilt thou be partitioned by these segments as a reed? The belief that what is ultimately real must be immutable is a very common one. It gave rise to the metaphysical notion of substance, and finds even now a wholly illegitimate satisfaction in such scientific doctrines as the conservation of energy and mass. It is difficult to disentangle the truth and the error in this view. The arguments for the contention that time is unreal and that the world of sense is illusory must, I think, be regarded as fallacious. Nevertheless, there is, in some sense, easier to feel than to state, in which time is an unimportant and superficial characteristic of reality. Past and future must be acknowledged to be as real as the present. And a certain emancipation from slavery to time is essential to philosophical thought. The importance of time is rather practical than theoretical, rather in relation to our desires than in relation to truth. A truer image of the world, I think, is obtained by picturing things as entering into the stream of time from an eternal world outside, than from a view which regards time as the devouring tyrant of all that is. Both in thought and in feeling, even though time to be real, to realize the unimportance of time is the gate of wisdom. That this is the case may be seen at once by asking ourselves why our feelings towards the past are so different from our feelings towards the future. The reason for this difference is wholly practical. Our wishes can affect the future but not the past. The future is to some extent subject to our power, while the past is unalterably fixed. But every future will someday be past. If we see the past truly now, it must, when it was still future, have been just what we see it now it is to be, and what is now future must be just what we shall see it to be when it has become past. The felt difference of quality between past and future, therefore, is not an intrinsic difference, but only a difference in relation to us. To impartial contemplation, it ceases to exist. And impartiality of contemplation is, in the intellectual sphere, that very same virtue of disinterestedness, which, in the sphere of action, appears as justice and unselfishness. Whoever wishes to see the world truly, to rise in thought above the tyranny of practical desires, must learn to overcome the difference of attitude toward past and future, and to survey the whole stream of time in one comprehensive vision. That kind of way in which, as it seems to me, time ought not to enter into our theoretic philosophical thought may be illustrated by the philosophy which has become associated with the idea of evolution and which is exemplified by Nietzsche, pragmatism, and Bergson. This philosophy on the basis of the development which has led from the lowest forms of life up to man sees in progress the fundamental law of the universe and thus admits the difference between earlier and later into the very citadel of its contemplative outlook. With its past and future history of the world, conjectural as it is, I do not wish to quarrel, 
But I think that in the intoxication of a quick success, much that is required for a true understanding of the universe has been forgotten. Something of Hellenism, something too of Oriental resignation, must be combined with its hurrying Western self-assertion before it can emerge from the ardor of youth into the mature wisdom of manhood. In spite of its appeals to science, the true scientific philosophy, I think, is something more arduous and more aloof, appealing to less mundane hopes and requiring a severe discipline for its successful practice. Darwin's Origin of the Species persuaded the world that the difference between different species of animals and plants is not the fixed immutable difference that it appears to be. The doctrine of natural kinds, which has rendered classification easy and definite, which was enshrined in the Aristotelian tradition and protected by its supposed necessity for orthodox dogma, was suddenly swept away forever out of the biological world. The difference between man and the lower animals, which to our human conceit appears enormous, was shown to be a gradual achievement, involving intermediate being who could not with certainty be placed either within or without the human family. The sun and the planets had already been shown by Laplace to be very probably derived from a primitive, more or less undifferentiated nebula. Thus, the old fixed landmarks became wavering and indistinct, and all sharp outlines were blurred. Things and species lost their boundaries, and none could say where they began or where they ended. But if human conceit was staggered for a moment by its kinship with the ape, it soon found a way to reassert itself, and that way is the philosophy of evolution. A process which led from the amoeba to man appeared to the philosophers to be obviously a progress. Though whether the amoeba could agree with this opinion is not known. Hence the cycle of changes which science had shown to be the probable history of the past was welcomed as revealing a law of development toward good in the universe an evolution or unfolding of an idea slowly embodying itself in the actual. But such a way, though it might satisfy Spencer and those whom we may call Hegelian, evolutionists, could not be accepted as adequate by the more wholehearted votaries of change. An ideal to which the world continuously approaches is, to these minds, too dead and static to be inspiring. Not only the aspiration, but the ideal too must change and develop with the course of evolution. There must be no fixed goal, but a continual fashioning of fresh needs by the impulse which is life, and which alone gives unity to the process. Life, in this philosophy, is a continuous stream, in which all divisions are artificial and unreal. Separate things, beginnings and endings, are mere convenient fictions. There is only smooth, unbroken transition. The beliefs of today may count as true today, if they carry us along the stream, but tomorrow they will be false and must be replaced by new beliefs to meet the new situation. All our thinking consists of convenient fictions, imaginary congealings of the stream. Reality flows on in spite of all our fictions, and though it can be lived, it cannot be conceived in thought. Somehow, without explicit statement, the assurances slipped in that the future, though we cannot foresee it, will be better than the past or the present. The reader is like the child which expects a sweet because it has been told to open its mouth and shut its eyes. Logic, mathematics, physics disappear in this philosophy 
because they are too static. What is real is no impulse and movement towards a goal which, like the rainbow, recedes as we advance, and makes every place different when it reaches it from what it appeared to be at a distance. I do not propose to enter upon a technical examination of this philosophy. I wish only to maintain that the motives and interests which inspire it are so exclusively practical, and the problems with which it deals are so special, that it can hardly be regarded as touching any of the questions that, to my mind, constitute genuine philosophy. The predominant interest of evolutionism is in the question of human destiny, or at least of the destiny of life. It is more interested in morality and happiness than in knowledge for its own sake. It must be admitted that the same may be said of many other philosophies, and that a desire for the kind of knowledge which philosophy can give is very rare. But if philosophy is to attain truth, it is necessary first and foremost that philosophers should acquire the disinterested intellectual curiosity which characterizes the genuine man of science. Knowledge concerning the future, which is the kind of knowledge that must be sought if we are to know about human destiny, is possible within certain narrow limits. It is impossible to say how much the limits may be enlarged with the progress of science. But what is evident is that any proposition about the future belongs by its subject matter to some particular science, and is to be ascertained, if at all, by the methods of that science. Philosophy is not a shortcut to the same kind of results as those of the other sciences. If it is to be a genuine study, it must have a province of its own, and aim at results which the other sciences can neither prove nor disprove. Evolutionism is basing itself upon the notion of progress, which is change from the worse to the better, allows the notion of time, as it seems to me, to become its tyrant rather than its servant, and thereby loses that impartiality of contemplation, which is the source of all that is best in philosophic thought and feeling. Metaphysicians, as we saw, have frequently denied altogether the reality of time. I do not wish to do this. I wish only to preserve the mental outlook which inspired the denial. The attitude which, in thought, regards the past as having the same reality as the present and the same importance as the future. In so far, says Spinoza, as the mind conceives a thing according to the dictate of reason, it will be equally affected whether the idea is that of a future, past, or present thing. It is this conceiving according to the dictate of reason that I find lacking in the philosophy which is based on evolution. 4. Good and Evil Mysticism maintains that all evil is illusory, and sometimes maintains the same view as regards good, but more often holds that all reality is good. Both views are to be found in Heraclitus. Good and ill are one, he says, but to attain... To God all things are fair and good and right, but men hold some things wrong and some right. A similar twofold position is to be found in Spinoza, but he uses the word perfection when he means to speak of the good that is not merely human. By reality and perfection I mean the same thing, he says, but elsewhere we find the definition, by good I shall mean that which we certainly know to be useful to us. Thus perfection belongs to reality in its own nature, but goodness is relative to ourselves and our needs and disappears in an impartial survey. 
Some such distinction, I think, is necessary in order to understand the ethical outlook of mysticism. There is a lower, mundane kind of good and evil, which divides the world of appearance into what seem to be conflicting parts. But there is also a higher, mystical kind of good, which belongs to reality and is not opposed by any correlative kind of evil. It is difficult to give a logically tenable account of this position without recognizing that good and evil are subjective, that what is good is merely that towards which we have one kind of feeling, and what is evil is merely that towards which we have another kind of feeling. In our active life, where we have to exercise choice and to prefer this to that or two possible acts, it is necessary to have a distinction of good and evil, or at least of better and worse. But this distinction, like everything pertaining to action, belongs to what mysticism regards as the world of illusion, if only because it is essentially concerned with time. In our contemplative life, where action is not called for, it is possible to be impartial and to overcome the ethical dualism which action requires. So long as we remain merely impartial, we may be content to say that both the good and the evil of action are illusions. But if, as we must do if we have the mystic vision, we find the whole world worthy of love and worship, if we see the earth and every common sight, apparelled in celestial light, we shall say that there is a higher good than that of action, and that this higher good belongs to the whole world as it is in reality. In this way, the twofold attitude and the apparent vacillation of mysticism are explained and justified. The possibility of this universal love and joy in all that exists is of supreme importance for the conduct and happiness of life, and gives inestimable value to the mystic emotion, apart from any creeds which may be built upon it. But if we are not to be led into false beliefs, it is necessary to realize exactly what the mystic emotion reveals. It reveals a possibility of human nature a possibility of a nobler, happier, freer life than can be otherwise achieved. But it does not reveal anything about the non-human or about the nature of the universe in general. Good and bad, and even the higher good that mysticism finds everywhere, are the reflections of our own emotions on other things, not part of the substance of things as they are in themselves. And therefore an impartial contemplation, freed from all preoccupation with self, will not judge things good or bad, although it is very easily combined with that feeling of universal love which leads the mystic to say that the whole world is good. The philosophy of evolution, through the notion of progress, is bound up with the ethical dualism of the worse and the better and is thus shut out not only from the kind of survey which discards good and evil altogether from its view, but also from the mystical belief in the goodness of everything. In this way, the distinction of good and evil, like time, becomes a tyrant in this philosophy, and introduces into the thought the restless selectiveness of action. Good and evil, like time, are, as it would seem, not general or fundamental in the world of thought, but late and highly specialized members of the intellectual hierarchy. Although, as we saw, mysticism can be interpreted so as to agree with the view that good and evil are not intellectually fundamental, it must be admitted that here we are no longer in verbal agreement with most of the great philosophers and religious teachers of the past. 
I believe, however, that the elimination of ethical considerations from philosophy is both scientifically necessary and, though this may seem a paradox, an ethical advance. Both these contentions must briefly be defended. The hope of satisfaction to our more human desires, the hope of demonstrating that the world has this or that desirable ethical characteristic, is not one which, so far as I can see, a scientific philosophy can do anything whatsoever to satisfy. The difference between a good world and a bad one is a difference in the particular characteristics of the particular things that exist in these worlds. It is not a sufficiently abstract difference to come within the province of philosophy. Love and hate, for example, are ethical opposites. But to philosophy, they are closely analogous attitudes toward objects. The general form and structure of those attitudes towards objects which constitute mental phenomena is a problem for philosophy. But the difference between love and hate is not a difference of form or structure, and therefore belongs rather to the special science of psychology than to philosophy. Thus, the ethical interests which have often inspired philosophers must remain in the background. Some kind of ethical interest may inspire the whole study, but none must obtrude in the detail or to be expected in the special results which are sought. If this view seems at first sight disappointing, we may remind ourselves that a similar change has been found necessary in all other sciences. The physicist or chemist is not required to prove the ethical importance of his ions or atoms. The biologist is not expected to prove the utility of the plants or animals which he dissects. Astronomy, for example, was studied because men believed in astrology. It was thought that the movements of the planets had the most direct and important bearing upon the lives of human beings. Presumably, when this belief decayed and the disinterested study of astronomy began, many who had found astrology absorbingly interesting decided that astronomy had too little human interest to be worthy of study. Physics, as it appears in Plato's Timaeus, for example, is full of ethical notions. It is an essential part of its purpose to show that the earth is worthy of admiration. The modern physicist, on the contrary, though he has no wish to deny that the earth is admirable, is not concerned as physicist with its ethical attributes. He is merely concerned to find out facts, not to consider whether they are good or bad. In psychology, the scientific attitude is even more recent and more difficult than in the physical sciences. It is natural to consider that human nature is either good or bad, and to suppose that the difference between good and bad, so all-important in practice, must be important in theory also. It is also during the last century that an ethical neutral psychology has grown up, and here too, ethical neutrality has been essential to scientific success. In philosophy, hitherto, ethical neutrality has been seldom sought and hardly ever achieved. Men have remembered their wishes, and have judged philosophies in relation to their wishes. Driven from the particular sciences, the belief that the notions of good and evil must afford a key to the understanding of the world has sought a refuge in philosophy. But even from this last refuge, if philosophy is not to remain a set of pleasing dreams, this belief must be driven forth. It is a commonplace that happiness is not best achieved by those who seek it directly and it would seem that the same is true of the good. In thought, at any rate, those who forget good and evil 
and seek only to know the facts are more likely to achieve good than those who view the world through the distorting medium of their own desires. We are thus brought back to our seeming paradox, that a philosophy which does not seek to impose upon the world its own conceptions of good and evil is not only more likely to achieve truth, but is also the outcome of a higher ethical standpoint than one which, like evolutionism and most traditional systems, is perpetually appraising the universe and seeking to find in it an embodiment of present ideals. In religion, and in every deeply serious view of the world and of human destiny, there is an element of submission, a realization of the limits of human power, which is somewhat lacking in the modern world, with its quick material successes and its insolent belief in the boundless possibilities of progress. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and there is danger lest, through a too confident love of life, life itself should lose much of what gives it its highest worth. The submission which religion inculcates in action is essentially the same in spirit as that which science teaches in thought, and the ethical neutrality by which its victories have been achieved is the outcome of that submission. The good which it concerns us to remember is the good which it lies in our power to create, the good in our own lives and in our attitude towards the world. Insistence on belief in an external realization of the good is a form of self-assertion, which, while it cannot secure the external good which it desires, can seriously impair the inward good which lies within our power, and destroy that reverence towards the fact which constitutes both what is valuable in humanity and what is fruitful in the scientific temper. Human beings cannot, of course, wholly transcend human nature. Something subjective, if only the interest that determines the direction of our attention, must remain in all our thought. But scientific philosophy comes nearer to objectivity than any other human pursuit, and gives us, therefore, the closest constant and the most intimate relation with the outer world that it is possible to achieve. To the primitive mind, everything is either friendly or hostile, but experience has shown that friendliness and hostility are not the conceptions by which the world is to be understood. Scientific philosophy thus represents, though as yet only in a nascent condition, a higher form of thought than any pre-scientific belief or imagination. And like every approach to self-transcendence, it brings with it a rich reward, an increase of scope and breadth and comprehension. Evolutionism, in spite of its appeals to particular scientific facts, fails to be a truly scientific philosophy because of its slavery to time, its ethical preoccupations, and its predominant interest in our mundane concerns and destiny. A truly scientific philosophy will be more humble, more piecemeal, more arduous, offering less glitter of outward mirage to flatter fallacious hopes, but more indifferent to fate, and more capable of accepting the world without the tyrannous imposition of our human and temporary demands. The Place of Science in a Liberal Education Science, to the ordinary reader of newspapers, is represented by a varying selection of sensational triumphs such as wireless telegraphy and aeroplanes, radioactivity and the marvels of modern alchemy. It is not of this aspect of science that I wish to speak. Science, in this aspect, consists of detached up-to-date fragments, 
interesting only until they are replaced by something newer and more up-to-date, displaying nothing of the systems of patiently constructed knowledge out of which, almost as a casual incident, have come the practically useful results which interest the man in the street. The increased command over the forces of nature which is derived from science is undoubtedly an amply sufficient reason for encouraging scientific research, but this reason has been so often urged and is so easily appreciated that other reasons, to my mind quite as important, are apt to be overlooked. It is with these other reasons, especially with the intrinsic value of a scientific habit of mind in forming our outlook on the world, that I shall be concerned in what follows. The instance of wireless telegraphy will serve to illustrate the difference between the two points of view. Almost all the serious intellectual labor required for the possibility of this invention is due to three men, Faraday, Maxwell, and Hertz. In alternating layers of experiment and theory, these three men built up the modern theory of electromagnetism and demonstrated the identity of light with electromagnetic waves. The system which they discovered is one of profound intellectual interest, bringing together and unifying an endless variety of apparently detached phenomena, and displaying a culminative mental power which cannot but afford delight to every generous spirit. The mechanical details which remain to be adjusted in order to utilize their discoveries for a practical system of telegraphy demanded no doubt very considerable ingenuity, but had not that broad sweep and that universality which could give them intrinsic interest as an object of disinterested contemplation. From the point of view of training the mind, of giving that well-informed, impersonal outlook which constitutes culture in the good sense of this much-misused word, it seems to be generally held indisputable that a literary education is superior to one based on science. Even the warmest advocates of science are apt to rest their claims on the contemplation that culture ought to be sacrificed to utility. Those men of science who respect culture, when they associate with men learned in the classics, are apt to admit, not merely politely but sincerely, a certain inferiority on their side. Compensated doubtless by the services which science renders to humanity, but nonetheless real. And so long as this attitude exists among men of science, it tends to verify itself. The intrinsically valuable aspects of science tend to be sacrificed to the merely useful, and little attempt is made to preserve that leisurely, systematic survey by which the finer quality of mind is formed and nourished. But even if there be, in present fact, any such inferiority as is supposed in the educational value of science— this is, I believe, not the fault of science itself, but the fault of the spirit in which science is taught. If its full possibilities were realized by those who teach it, I believe that its capacity of producing those habits of mind which constitute the highest mental excellence would be at least as great as that of literature, and more particularly of Greek and Latin literature. In saying this, I have no wish whatsoever to disparage a classical education. I have not myself enjoyed its benefits, and my knowledge of Greek and Latin authors is derived almost wholly from translations. But I am firmly persuaded that the Greeks fully deserve all the admiration that is bestowed upon them, and that it is a very great and serious loss to be unacquainted with their writings. It is not by attacking them, but by drawing attention to neglected excellences in science that I wish to conduct my argument. 
One defect, however, does seem inherent in a purely classical education, namely a too exclusive emphasis on the past. By the study of what is absolutely ended and can never be renewed, a habit of criticism towards the present and the future is engendered. The qualities in which the present excels are qualities to which the study of the past does not direct attention, and to which, therefore, the student of Greek civilization may easily become blind. In what is new and growing, there is apt to be something crude, insolent, even a little vulgar, which is shocking to the man of sensitive taste. Quivering from the rough contact, he retires to the trim gardens of a polished past, forgetting that they were reclaimed from the wilderness by men as rough and earth-soiled as those from whom he shrinks in his own day. The habit of being unable to recognize merit until it is dead is too apt to be the result of a purely bookish life, and a culture based wholly on the past will seldom be able to pierce through everyday surroundings on the essential splendor of contemporary things or to the hope of still greater splendor in the future. My eyes sought not the men of old, and now their age away has rolled. I weep to think I shall not see the heroes of posterity. So says the Chinese poet. But such impartiality is rare in the more pugnacious atmosphere of the West, where the champions of past and future fight a never-ending battle instead of combining to seek out the merits of both. This consideration, which militates not only against the exclusive study of the classics, but against every form of culture which has become static, traditional, and academic, leads inevitably to the fundamental question. What is the true end of education? But before attempting to answer this question, it will be well to define the sense in which we are to use the word education. For this purpose, I shall distinguish the sense in which I mean to use it from two others both perfectly legitimate, the one broader and the other narrower, and the sense in which I mean to use the word. In the broader sense, education will include not only what we learn through instruction, but all that we learn through personal experience, the formation of character through the education of life. Of this aspect of education, vitally important as it is, I will say nothing since its consideration would introduce topics quite foreign to the question with which we are concerned. In the narrower sense, education may be confined to instruction, the imparting of definite information on various subjects, because such information, in and for itself, is useful in daily life. Elementary education, reading, writing, and arithmetic, is almost wholly of this kind. But instruction, necessary as it is, does not per se constitute education in the sense in which I wish to consider it. Education in the sense in which I mean it may be defined as the formation, by means of instruction, of certain mental habits and a certain outlook on life and the world. It remains to ask ourselves what mental habits and what sort of outlook can be hoped for as the result of instruction. When we have answered this question, we attempt to decide what science has to contribute to the formation of the habits and outlook which we desire. Our whole life is built about a certain number, not a very small number, of primary instincts and impulses. Only what is in some way connected with these instincts and impulses appears to us desirable or important. There is no faculty, whether reason or virtue or whatever it may be called, 
that can take our active life and our hopes and fears outside the region controlled by these first movers of all desire. Each of them is like a queen bee, aided by a hive of workers gathering honey. But when the queen is gone, the workers languish and die, and the cell remains empty of their expected sweetness. So with each primary impulse in civilized man, it is surrounded and protected by a busy swarm of attendant derivative desires, which store up in its service whatever honey the surrounding world affords. But if the queen impulse dies, the death-dealing influence, though retarded a little by habit, spreads slowly through all the subsidiary impulses, and a whole tract of life becomes inexplicably colorless. What was formerly full of zest and so obviously worth doing that it raised no questions has now grown dreary and purposeless. With a sense of disillusion, we inquire the meaning of life and decide, perhaps, that all is vanity. The search for an outside meaning that can compel an inner response must always be disappointed. All meaning must be at bottom related to our primary desires and when they are extinct, no miracle can restore to the world the value which they reflected upon it. The purpose of education, therefore, cannot be to create any primary impulse which is lacking in the uneducated. The purpose can only be to enlarge the scope of those that human nature provides. By increasing the number and variety of attendant thoughts, and by showing where the most permanent satisfaction is to be found. Under the impulse of a Calvinistic horror of the natural man, this obvious truth has been too often misconceived in the training of the young. Nature has been falsely regarded as excluding all that is best in what is natural, and the endeavor to teach virtue has led to the production of stunted and contorted hypocrites instead of full-grown human beings. From such mistakes in education, a better psychology or a kinder heart is beginning to preserve the present generation. We need, therefore, waste no more words on the theory that the purpose of education is to thwart or eradicate nature. But although nature must supply the initial force of desire, nature is not, in the civilized man, the spasmodic, fragmentary, and yet violent set of impulses that it is in the savage. Each impulse has its constitutional ministry of thought and knowledge and reflection, through which possible conflicts of impulses are foreseen, and temporary impulses are controlled by the unifying impulse which may be called wisdom. In this way, education destroys the crudity of instinct and increases through knowledge the wealth and variety of the individual's contacts with the outside world, making him no longer an isolated fighting unit but a citizen of the universe, embracing distant countries, remote regions of space, and vast stretches of past and future within the circle of his interests. It is this simultaneous softening and the insistence of desire and enlargement of its scope that is the chief moral end of education. Closely connected with this moral end is the more purely intellectual aim of education, the endeavor to make us see and imagine the world in an objective manner as far as possible as it is in itself and not merely through the distorting medium of personal desire. The complete attainment of such an objective view is no doubt an ideal, indefinitely approachable, but not actually and fully realizable. Education, considered as a process of forming our mental habits and for our outlook on the world, is to be judged successful in proportion as its outcome approximates to this ideal 
in proportion, that is to say, as it gives us a true view of our place in society, of the relation of the whole human society to its non-human environment, and of the nature of the non-human world as it is in itself apart from our desires and interests. If this standard is admitted, we can return to the consideration of science inquiring how far science contributes to such an aim, and whether it is in any respect superior to its rivals in educational practice. Two opposite and at first sight conflicting merits belong to science as against literature and art. The one, which is not inherently necessary but is certainly true at the present day, is hopefulness as to the future of human achievement and in particular as to the useful work that may be accomplished by any intelligent student. This merit and the cheerful outlook which it engenders prevent what might otherwise be the depressing effect of another aspect of science. To my mind also a merit, and perhaps its greatest merit, I mean the irrelevance of human passions and of the whole subjective apparatus where scientific truth is concerned. Each of these reasons for preferring the study of science requires some amplification. Let us begin with the first. In the study of literature or art, our attention is perpetually riveted upon the past. The men of Greece or the Renaissance did better than any men do now. The triumphs of former ages, so far from facilitating fresh triumphs in our own age, actually increase the difficulty of fresh triumphs by rendering originality harder of attainment. Not only is artistic achievement not cumulative, but it seems even to depend upon a certain freshness and novete of impulse that vision which civilization tends to destroy. Hence comes to those who have been nourished on the literary and artistic productions of former ages a certain peevishness and undue fastidiousness towards the present from which there seems no escape except into the deliberate vandalism which ignores tradition and in the search after originality achieves only the eccentric. But in such vandalism there is none of the simplicity and spontaneity out of which great art springs. Theory is still the canker in its core, and insincerity destroys the advantages of a merely pretended ignorance. The despair thus arising from an education which suggests no preeminent mental activity except that of artistic creation is wholly absent from an education which gives the knowledge of the scientific method. The discovery of the scientific method, except in pure mathematics, is a thing of yesterday. Speaking broadly, we may say that it dates from Galileo. Yet already it has transformed the world, and its success proceeds with ever-accelerating velocity. In science, men have discovered an activity of the very highest value in which they are no longer, as in art, dependent for progress upon the appearance of continually greater genius. For in science, the successors stand upon the shoulders of their predecessors. Where one man of supreme genius has invented a method, a thousand lesser men can apply it. No transcendent ability is required in order to make useful discoveries in science. The edifice of science needs its masons, bricklayers, and common laborers, as well as its foremen, master builders, and architects. In art, nothing worth doing can be done without genius. In science, even a moderate capacity can contribute to a supreme achievement. In science, the man of a real genius is the man who invents a new method. The notable discoveries are often made by his successors 
who can apply the method with fresh vigor, unimpaired by the previous labor of perfecting it. But the mental caliber of the thought required for their work, however brilliant, is not so great as that required by the first inventor of the method. There are in science immense numbers of different methods appropriate to different classes of problems. But over and above them all, there is something not easily definable, which may be called the method of science. It was formerly customary to identify with this inductive method and to associate it with the name of Bacon. But the true inductive method was not discovered by Bacon, and the true method of science is something which includes deduction as much as induction, logic and mathematics as much as botany and geology. I shall not attempt the difficult task of stating what the scientific method is, but I will try to indicate the temper of mind out of which the scientific method grows, which is the second of the two merits that were mentioned above as belonging to the scientific education. The kernel of the scientific outlook is a thing so simple, so obvious, so seemingly trivial that the mention of it may almost excite derision. The kernel of the scientific outlook is the refusal to regard our own desires, tastes, and interests as affording a key to understanding of the world. Stated thus baldly, this may seem no more than a trite truism, but to remember it consistently in manners arousing our passionate partisanship is by no means easy, especially where the available evidence is uncertain and inconclusive. A few illustrations will make this clear. Aristotle, I understand, considered that the stars must move in circles because the circle is the most perfect curve. In the absence of evidence to the contrary, he allowed himself to decide a question of fact by an appeal to the aesthetico-moral considerations. In such a case, it is at once obvious to us that this appeal was unjustifiable. We know now how to ascertain as a fact the way in which the heavenly bodies move, and we know now that they do not move in circles or even in accurate ellipses, or in any other kind of simply describable curve. This may be painful to a certain hankering after simplicity of pattern in the universe, but we know that in astronomy such feelings are irrelevant. Easy as this knowledge seems now, we owe it to the courage and insight of the first inventors of the scientific method, and more especially of Galileo. We may take as another illustration Mathis's doctrine of population. This illustration is all the better for the fact that his actual doctrine is now known to be largely erroneous. It is not his conclusions that are valuable, but the temper and method of his inquiry. As everyone knows, it was to him that Darwin owed an essential part of his theory of natural selection, and this was only possible because Malthus's outlook was truly scientific. His great merit lies in considering man not as the object of praise or blame, but as part of nature, a thing with a certain characteristic of behavior, from which certain consequences must follow. If the behavior is not quite what Malthus supposed, if the consequences are not quite what he inferred, that may falsify his conclusion, but does not impair the value of his method. The objections which were made when his doctrine was new, that it was horrible and depressing, that people ought not to act as he said they did, and so on, were all such as implied an unscientific attitude of mind, as against all of them, his calm determination to treat man as a natural phenomenon 
marks an important advance over the reformers of the 18th century and the revolution. Under the influence of Darwinism, the scientific attitude towards man has now become fairly common, and is to some people quite natural, though to most it is still a difficult and artificial intellectual contortion. There is, however, one study which is yet almost wholly untouched by the scientific spirit. I mean the study of philosophy. Philosophers and the public image that the scientific spirit must pervade pages that bristle with allusions to ions, germplasms, and the eyes of shellfish. But as the devil can quote scripture, so the philosopher can quote science. The scientific spirit is not an affair of quotation, of externally acquired information, any more than manners are affair of the etiquette book. The scientific attitude of mind involves a sweeping array of all other desires in the interests of the desire to know. It involves suppression of hopes and fears, loves and hates, and the whole subjective emotional life, until we become subdued to the material, able to see it frankly, without preconceptions, without bias, without any wish except to see it as it is, and without any belief that what it is must be determined by some relation, positive or negative, to what we should like it to be, or to what we can easily imagine it to be. Now in philosophy, this attitude of mind has not yet been achieved. A certain self-absorption, not personal, but human, has marked almost all attempts to conceive the universe as a whole. Mind, or some aspect of it, thought or will or sentience, has been regarded as the pattern after which the universe is to be conceived, for no better reason at bottom than that such a universe should not seem strange and would give us the cozy feeling that every place is like a home. To conceive the universe as essentially progressive or essentially deteriorating, for example, is to give our hopes and fears a cosmic importance, which may, of course, be justified, but which we have as yet no reason to suppose justified. Until we have learnt to think of it in ethically neutral terms, we have not arrived at a scientific attitude in philosophy, and until we have arrived at such an attitude, it is hardly to be hoped that philosophy will achieve any solid results. I have spoken so far largely of the negative aspect of the scientific spirit, but it is from the positive aspect that its value is derived. The instinct and constructiveness, which is one of the chief incentives to artistic creation, can find in scientific systems a satisfaction more massive than any epic poem. Disinterested curiosity, which is the source of almost all intellectual effort, finds with astonished delight that science can unveil secrets which might well have seemed forever undiscoverable. The desire for a larger life and wider interests, for an escape from private circumstances and even from the whole recurring human cycle of birth and death, is fulfilled by the impersonal cosmic outlook of science as by nothing else. To all these must be added as contributing to the happiness of the man of science, the admiration of splendid achievement, and the consciousness of inestimable utility to the human race. A life devoted to science is therefore a happy life, and its happiness is derived from the very best sources that are open to dwellers on this troubled and passionate planet. Thank you for listening to this sample. 
To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.